Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Villanova English Department podcast. I will be speaking this week with Professor Adrian Perry, and we are going to be talking about language, being multilingual, being monolingual, what that means and what impact that has on literature. And just a quick note before we get started, we are going to be taking a break after this episode because Villanova is um, taking a break itself over the winter between the fall and spring semesters. So there will not be any new podcasts coming out until January. And then we will have a bit of a reduced lineup in the spring. So I hope that everyone enjoys their holidays and has a nice time off. And we will see you again in 2021. And, and, it, and it's going. It's that simple. Wow. And it says yeah. you're consenting to be recorded. Oh, does it? Yeah. All right. That's, I've never seen that before. Neat. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> with that out the way. Um, okay. So yeah, good, uh, good morning. Um, good morning. Adrian, very nice to see you. Nice to see you too. So would you mind to start with just introducing yourself and talking a bit about uh, what you teach and what your area of study is? Okay, so my name is Adrienne Perry, and in terms of what I teach, um, I teach a lot of different things for the department. So I teach some creative writing classes, um, like introduction to creative nonfiction and um, editing and publishing classes. So a class for first year students and then a class that just seems to continually be evolving. Um, <laughs> I just make it into something a little different every time about editing and publishing. And I teach a class about adaptation which connects a little bit to our discussion today because it's um, something I teach related to uh, translation. So that is an adaptation class about short stories and novels and how they're converted into um, film. And what else do I teach? The Literary Festival. Um, but the conversation we're having today really arises out of my interest in translation studies and, and the practice of translation. And over the last two semesters, I've taught a class called The Art of Translation um, once for undergraduate students in spring 2020 and this fall for graduate students. And that's been a lot of fun. Okay, so we are going to be talking about this translation studies business. And you had sent me an excerpt from a book called Beyond the Mother Tongue by Yasmin uh, Ildiz. And so I wanted to ask you some questions about, about that. So she writes about this thing called the monolingual paradigm. So could you maybe explain for us what is the monolingual paradigm? Um, well, the first thing I have to say is that it's one of those phrases you hear monolingual paradigm and you go, oh my gosh, what is this going to be about? But I actually think we have many of us examples from our own experience where we're, where we could point to and say, oh, that's the monolingual paradigm in action. Um, but Ildiz is trying to get us to think about the monolingual paradigm as not just an instance where there's only one language in operation. So for example, you know, that you go into a business meeting or a faculty meeting and everybody's speaking one language, in our case, probably English, um, that could be seen as a monolingual situation. But the word paradigm here, um, I think because it points to sort of patterns and worldview, she's really trying to get us to think about how monolingualism, this focusing on the speaking of an adherence to one language is actually kind of like a structure. And it's something that as a structure, it organizes behavior, it organizes people. And so this monolingual paradigm, this worldview is something that um, she attributes to uh, like an enlightenment idea. Um, and that actually, while monolingualism might seem very sort of natural in many ways that um, you know, you're used to sort of encountering a person and speaking with them one language, it's actually um, more true to history um, that we've been multilingual. So she's really trying to get us to think about how monolingualism is, um, has obscured multilingual practices that have been around for a long time. So she's really interested in us thinking about monolingualism as having these vast implications. So not just about how it's nice to be able to speak in more than one language, but about how it really structures our lives and our worlds. Um, 
So she talks about, and I love this quotation, I'm just gonna bust out this quotation. The pressures of this monolingual paradigm have not just obscured multilingual practices across history, they've also led to active processes of monolingualization, which have produced more monolingual subjects, more monolingual communities, and more monolingual institutions. So when I read this this morning, it made me think about how when I was learning different world languages in high school, and I would bust them out on my dad, he would get really frustrated because he couldn't understand what I was saying and he figured I was being cheeky and maybe I was. And he would say, speak English or kind of like, we speak English here. And um, I love my dad and so this isn't a diss to my dad at all. But I think part of what happens there is the sense of, this is not right. You should be speaking or working or operating in this one language. And so, you know, you think about how we're such a nation of immigrants and yet how much of our schooling exists in one language, how many of our communities, when we're existing in our communities, our social spheres, how often are we operating outside of one language? And so I think the word pressure is really key there, that there's also sort of a pressure, maybe that's why I give this example of my dad, there's also kind of a pressure to operate in, in this one language. It's a long answer. Yes, but it's a, a complicated subject. So, so what were the languages you were learning in high school at that time? So um, the high school that I went to in Cheyenne, Wyoming offered Spanish, French, and German. And I took Spanish and French. And I loved trying out these languages. And I'm sure I was saying things absolutely incorrectly. <laughs> and maybe I was just saying like, I want a sandwich, but I liked being able to do that in another language. Yeah. Um... And, and do you think there's some element of, maybe this is an Anglophone thing, but this idea that if you're speaking another language that you're trying to be fancy, you know, that you're sort of being a bit hoity-toity or getting above yourself somehow? Yeah, I do think there's that sort of attitude. Um, and I think it can even be inflected a little bit about, or depending on the language that you're speaking. Yes. You know, so for example... Speaking French, I think, is a language that people associate more, rightly or wrongly, with a sort of kind of arrogance or a sort of, oh, you're so fancy now. Um, so I think that we can see it that way. And I think Ildiz would actually argue that that sort of distrust or that sense of, oh, you're being fancy or, oh, you think you're better than other people or, oh, you know, X, Y, and Z, that that's partially the monolingual paradigm in operation that by signaling that you speak another language, even though you might just be having fun, in a monolingual paradigm, you're also signaling that you're maybe kind of other, that you have allegiances outside of this kind of core group of language speakers, and that there's a way that we um, experience a kind of, we've been sort of acculturated to have a sort of uh, distrust around that, people who are monolingual English speakers. So there's a really strong us and them component to this, and that leads us into the next area of, of this topic, which is like this question of nationalism, nations. So um, Ildis talks about how monolingualism and multilingualism as concepts are bound up with this idea of the nation state and how it has changed over time. So could you talk a bit about that, please? Yeah, I find this idea really fascinating, one, two, helpful. I think it's something we can see playing out in our, um, in our national discourse now, but in the past as well. And I think she gives us some really practical um, instances of the ways in which this occurs. So for example, um, a, a, a graduate student of mine in the Art of Translation class, a really wonderful student, Vicki Dearden, wrote a great um, seminar paper where she talks about um, political language. And she gives this example of the 2016 presidential campaigns where I believe Jeb Bush spoke Spanish during part of a debate. Um, so I may be misquoting this somewhat, but um, there was a response by President Trump that was basically sort of, uh, you know, you talked about in asking this question, the kind of us, them, and the othering. And there was sort of a sense that, you know, by speaking um, Spanish, which is maybe something that Bush was doing in part because um, 
because the country has so many Spanish speakers, there is a sense of reaching out to communities that are bilingual, Spanish speaking, that that's a positive thing, right? We're gonna, it's a big tent, we're gonna bring more people in. But the way that that could also be interpreted or was interpreted, um, I believe by President Trump, is like that that is um, not actually American. So the idea of who's a citizen, of who's really patriotic, of who can be trusted, um, becomes about sort of who speaks what language. And there's this sense that by speaking Spanish, um, it's a kind of weakness or a sort of betrayal or betraying allegiances other than to, other than to the nation. So this tension between monolingualism and multilingualism, while you know, this 2016 example feels really present for us in many ways, is something I think Ildis would say has been going on for a long time. And I think certainly within the US context, really thinking about particularly immigrant communities that um, were really pushed to assimilate and not speak their um, not speak their languages of origin or their heritage languages. So, but this idea of a nation, I mean, some of it is sort of like, well, um, who are the people who um, speak this language, are part of this community, understand, you know, these documents, and that we shouldn't have to sort of interpret them for people. People should just learn English and they should know them, right? as opposed to, great, we would love to have, um, have everybody as part of this community and we would make, our, make these documents, make, the, make, the, make it multilingual. And I think Ildis would say it already is multilingual, it's just sort of we refuse to, to see that. So um, maybe a better example in some ways is schooling. Like I, I remember when um, I was in school, uh, all of the language instruction was in English. Um, but if I look back now, I also understand that there were a number of students in my classroom, peers, who spoke more than one language, but we never had any kind of instruction other than in English. And we would say the Pledge of Allegiance, and we would make these gestures as students um, and in our learning where we were just really being sort of acculturated through one particular language. And it's not like those values only exist in English. They can exist across languages. So I don't know if I'm giving you good examples here, um, but I think something that's come up for me too within the last few years is that I think um, you can also feel how the nation um, is formed and how, um, how these dynamics play out. When you think about, for example, people who, um, who are US citizens, but who speak multiple languages that might hesitate to speak those languages in public because they worry about being seen as outsiders. So there was an article in, you know, I think major news um, outlets like the New York Times and Washington Post about two women who were in Montana and who were Spanish speakers and they were assumed to be um, undocumented because they were speaking Spanish. So there's, that's an example of the way the, the nation is being formed in people's minds um, around monolingualism and how someone who is you know, part of the nation state is being seen as other simply by speaking another language. So um, what does it mean to be post monolingual then? I, I feel like we have a sense of this monolingual construct, but then this idea of post monolingual, what, what is that? What could that look like? Ooh, that's a good question. <laughs> what could this look like? Um, and, you know, looking through Ildiz's argument, she wants us to think about about it in a couple of different ways. So she's thinking about the post here really specifically. And one is that it's a little bit, of, a little bit different from our ideas of, you know, like we talked about being post-racial, um, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> um, we, gave, we gave it a wing, you know. We, we, gave, gave, we gave it a try. We, we, gave it a <laughs> we might come back to that sometime. Yeah. Um, so she's thinking about it as um, not so much a sense of being beyond something, so like post, we're, we're past that. It's not, it's not that so much as sort of marking this moment when um, monolingualism as a paradigm emerged. So sort of, she's seeing it in kind of a historical way there. So, and she, in terms of thinking about um, the monolingual paradigm in a European context, which is really where she's situating her, her work, um, she's taking us to the 18th century and to the Enlightenment. So sort of thinking about this is this moment when this paradigm emerged and after that is sort of post. So, um, but she also wants us to know that it's flexible because 
multilingual attempts to overcome the monolingual paradigm have always, you know, she's saying that they've existed and we need to come to recognize them. But she's also saying that the monolingual paradigm can arrive in different places in different contexts at different times. And that in some places, maybe it hasn't at all. Multilingualism has continued to be um, sort of the dominant mode. So there's that one idea of post is sort of marking when um, the monolingual paradigm emerged. And then um, she also wants us to think about it in a kind of, um, as a sort of political way or as a struggle. So to think about post-monolingualism as also being about a kind of um, struggle against monolingualism. And that there's this, and that that kind of points us to this tension that's existed between monolingualism and multilingualism. So those are sort of the two major ways of thinking about post-monolingualism. What it would look like, I don't know. I feel like my, it blows my wig back. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, and we'll probably talk about this a little bit later. I think literature and art can give us some examples of ways to sort of envision um, a post-monolingual future or post-monolingual possibilities. Um, one thing that it might include is just moving away from English language dominance. So a way to sort of embrace the struggle against monolingualism in a practical sphere could be to, for example, in a community meeting, make sure that there are multiple language speakers and interpreting materials so that everybody who comes in understands that one language isn't gonna be the dominant language here. And um, we're going to have people translating um, and interpreting into and out of Spanish, um, Vietnamese, whatever the languages are of that community. Like that would be an example of a of post-monolingualism happening where, where the multilingual space is not only acknowledged, but is really engaged with. Yeah, I, I think that's interesting because, you know, I'm here in, um, uh, in, the, in the San Francisco Bay Area at the moment, and we're right by, you know, public parks. And when you go there, there is maybe a 50% chance if you walk by people that they'll be speaking English and then a 50% chance they'll be speaking something else. You know, it could be Spanish, it could be Vietnamese, it could be uh, Mandarin, it could be any number of things, you know, or um, Russian, I've heard. Um, you know, so it, it, it's very much a multilingual space and there's multilingual um, signage, you know, but still the sort of the overarching official kind of language remains English, even though the situation on the ground is a lot more much more multilingual than that. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's an interesting kind of thing to, um, to see and to, and to contrast with, I guess, different, um, different communities. Um, so yeah, that reflection yeah, yeah. went nowhere, but there you go. No, I don't, no, no, I actually was thinking about this earlier today. Yeah. Because, um, you know, like you're giving this example of being in California and how yeah. you, you, go on a walk and you may hear these different languages and then it's striking to go to other places and you realize like, I'm only hearing, you know, I'm only hearing English here. So, you know, I had similar experiences to the one you're describing when I was in uh, Houston, where, you know, you get on um, public transportation there. I took the bus, I put my bike on the bus and, um, oh, those were very fine days, um, <laughs> you know, and the signs are in um, Spanish, English, English, French, um, Mandarin, they're in uh, Arabic. So yeah. it just sort of gives you this picture too of like, here are all the folks who are potentially on this bus. And then certainly there are going to be languages that are not included that other people speak too. Um, and there was a real sense of, um, I really loved that. And I loved hearing um, languages that I didn't know when I found that exciting. And I think for me, I find that exciting, but I also appreciate that other people hear kind of like, you know, this reference I made to my father, hear a language they don't understand and it feels they have a kind of resistance. I think it's almost physical, the sense of, I don't know what's being said, um, or that's not my language. And I think that again is sort of maybe like an internal physical experience of the monolingual paradigm. But, um, you know, one of the things that struck me in attending, you know, museum openings and things like that out here is that there's very little signage in Spanish. And when I was in Houston, um, particularly the major museums like the MFAH, uh, all the signs um, for, for the exhibits were in both Spanish and English. So there are even, you know, small shifts like that and that, you know, 
the MFAH, though, was doing a great job of that, it also didn't have as much, um, it didn't have as many languages as the bus did. So, <laughs> so you can see that there are, you know, really interesting shifts that happen on, depending on where you are in the country, what you'll hear, what you'll see. Yeah. So I thought your, your question and your point was well taken. Please keep that in the podcast. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> We're keeping it in. Keep um, it. So there's this uh, quote within uh, Eldiz's article that I wanted to, um, to pull out there. Yeah. So it's from Susan Gall, who's a linguistic anthropologist. It's sort of a long quote, but um, I think it's worth getting into. So she writes, it was only in the Enlightenment era and the subsequent romantic reaction to it that language came to be considered as an object with particular attributes. So I think that's the super interesting thing of like, we envision that a language must have a given character associated with it, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I experienced this like personally with um, Russian because I worked in Kazakhstan for a number of years and, and learned Russian to some extent. And, you know, I think there's an Anglophone notion that it's a very harsh, scary kind of bad guy language. And then um, <laughs> as you learn it and you're speaking with Russian people, like there's a real sense that it's sort of romantic and there's like a deep Russian soul and that it's quite intimate and it has a, a harsh and bureaucratic side, but it's also, it can be quite funny and it can be really over the top. Um, yeah, like quite just romantic and sweet and emotional, you know, and that was something I didn't um, cop to at all until I was immersed in it. So, you know, where do we get these ideas that languages have these attributes? What does that, what does that mean? I feel like you've hit on something really um, interesting here in bringing out this quotation from Gaul and then also sharing your, um, sharing your experience, which is so cool. Um, We'll have to have a side our conversation about that. I'd love to know more about your, your time there. Um, so I feel like there are a couple of things in operation. One is that there, there are some differences between languages that can't be disputed. So for example, that you know, in English, we, le- we read left to right. And you know, top, top of the page, bottom to the page. Um, Arabic, Hebrew, right to left. Um, Japanese, top down. So thinking about these, there are different ways in which um, languages operate. Their grammar, um, the way that they're printed. Um, Another graduate student in my class, um, Maddie Davis, did a really wonderful translation project um, of contemporary German poets. And so one of the things that was interesting, um, as she showed the German and then her translations, is of course in German, nouns are all capitalized. So just even these kinds of things, um, you know, can seem like little things sometimes, but of course they, they point to, you know, their, their whole histories here. So there are attributes like that. But what you're talking about too is sort of like our sort of our, our impressions of languages or what we expect from them, maybe based on what we've heard. Um, some of these things I think are historical. Some of them I think are cultural. Um, so for example, when you'd sent me questions, I think you'd mentioned maybe French, and that French, you know, French, I think, is associated with sort of romance, and you know, it's hard to think of French and not think of you know the the capital and think of you know think of Paris and all this sort of stuff. So I think that some of these um, these attributes um, can sometimes seem almost more stereotypical based on sort of what we think of in terms of uh, you know cultures, and then we sort of um, add that onto the language. So for example, some of the things you were sharing about Russian, you know, I think depending on um, when you were born, when you grow, grew up, um, you know, I think, you know, for most of my early childhood is Soviet Union. And so, um, you know, we just had a kind of association with the Soviet Union. Uh, and so, you know, really thought about like, this is the language of spies. Um, not and not like this is the language of Akhmatova and um, Tolstoy and all of these incredible um, prose writers and poets. I mean, I feel like the Russian writers, like Irish writers, are just like really heavy hitters. You know what I mean? They're like winning all the prize fights. Um, so, so some of this, I mean, this is a long-winded answer. I think some of it is we're speaking about the actual substance and structure of like how syntax diction how the, the kind of the, the sort of 
the, the linguistic nature of those, um, the lexical nature of, of those languages, and then some is the kind of the cultural um, matter or atmosphere that we might project onto it, you know. Um, and we would probably be surprised hear how people think of English, you know, um, to hear what people think about about the language that we speak every day. And, you know, is English very, is it seductive? I don't know. <laughs> is it the language of love? I don't know. Um, so I, I think Gall's getting at other things there, but that's sort of my immediate hit. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting you bring up as well, there's this idea of the impressions we have of the language, but then there's something a bit more technical, which is how, in a way, it's probably mostly the syntax, like how the language kind of orients itself and then how that might theoretically impact the way a writer might express thoughts or the kind of literature they might produce. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I had in my notes here, so this might need to be cut out, but I feel like you know, something that occurs to me is that there's, you know, so much language um, is about kind of migration. And so I've been listening to these um, French audiobooks to, you know, try and keep my French up. And one of the things that the, and these audiobooks are really about being able to go to a French speaking country and like, you know, find a room with a shower and <laughs> get oh, a yeah. sandwich and all the real the disco. Yeah, yeah, get to the discotheque. Um, anyway, so, <laughs> so, but you know, one of the things that's, um, interesting about this this audiobook is that he really emphasizes all of that you know all of the language in English that is that comes from French yeah so one of the things that I think is really fascinating too is we've we've seen our you know we'll see English as monolingual without realizing how deeply this language has been inflected by other languages and how many of the words um, we're speaking are actually derived from French or from German etc and so I think it's also interesting to think about um, these attributes of language and, and, and not remember how much migration and trade has, in, has impacted the way we speak and the way languages, you know, sort of, um, they can be kind of like, parasitic isn't the right word, but they just kind of bring in other bits of language. Um, and then we just sort of understand them as French when actually you know, it came originally from Persia. I don't know. So. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's very hard. I think it's a fool's errand to try and be a purist about language, particularly in a nationalistic sense, because so much does come from outside, you know, and mm -hmm. makes its way in and becomes a natural part of the way people talk. Right, right. So there's this um, other quote, and I, I think this is um, Ilda's herself here. So we're talking about the romantic um, view of language, mm -hmm. like the sort of post-enlightenment uh, view. Yeah. So translation no longer merely transported content from one form into an equivalent form without damage, but rather necessarily transformed the content in the process, right? So what do you think about that? You know, it's... Um it's one of those quotations, it's just a few sentences, but there is so much, it's like a cannon that's been loaded. <laughs> so much that's been packed into that. Um, a couple of thoughts come up right away. One is that this taps into long-standing conversation. I don't know that I would say debate, um, but a long-standing conversation in terms of translation, of thinking about questions of accuracy and fidelity, what is lost, you know, just that phrase even lost in translation. So um, a couple of things that came up for me in thinking about this is that um, one is that there is a kind of violence in translation and Lawrence Venuti talks about this, that um, not necessarily like blood and guts kind of violence, but there is um, in, a, in a sentence and in any language, if we work to translate it in, into another language, we sort of have to break it apart. And so that there's something there in that kind of breaking apart um, that, that is, is sort of violent. And the reason I mention this is because, you know, if we're looking at that, it's no longer merely transported content from one form into an equivalent form without damage. You know, that there is some, maybe damage isn't the word I would use, but there is a kind of transformation that's happened. Um, you know, clearly I haven't had my lunch yet. I keep mentioning sandwiches. Um, but, you know, if I say I would like to have a sandwich in English, to say that in French, 
I have to go through some process of breaking that up in my brain, the actual letters, et cetera. So there is this kind of damage that's happening, right? Um, but the, the content being transformed in the process. I mean, I think that some of this comes down to our sense about the relationship between languages and questions of translatability and untranslatability. And so, you know, I feel like I'm looking, at, I'm at the edge of the event horizon here with this question, because <laughs> it's like there's so much there. But, you know, I guess one thing that comes up for me is that um, translation isn't just about sort of equivalence across languages, you know, sort of like getting a word to, go, to fall in every single slot for all the words that were in the original language but it's instead about sort of um, questions of how we consider meaning. And, you know, am I going to get a sandwich saying both of those sentences? Yes. So the kind of outcome is, is what I wanted. Um, and so maybe something there is lost in sonically, um, but gained in terms of, you know, that, that French sandwich sounds really sassy. Um, <laughs> so, um, so, but the other thing that, that this question brings up for me is sort of ideas around translation um, and this kind of transfer of content and this damage that has been done. I think some of those ideas have also led to this idea that translation is sort of um, subordinate to the original text. You know, it's a lesser form. Oh, you can't read Kafka in the German. Too bad. You'll never really understand Kafka, but you can read this English version and, you know, suffer along. And I, I sort of push against that because I feel like one of the things that this quotation really brings up for me is that all work, all writing is derivative in some way, that it's being drawn from other sources, languages, traditions, even unconsciously by people. So I feel like this is one question I absolutely have not answered for you. But these are some thoughts that, <laughs> that come up in thinking about it. Um, I guess the other thing about Maybe that romantic view is that the way this starts sort of contributing to the monolingual paradigm is that um, this idea that there, like that there's something really discreet about each language and, you know, sort of, and I think this kind of gets me to this idea of um, the kind of migration and trade. So this idea kind of romantic idea that, you know, we can have a bunch of languages, but they're all distinct and they're separate and they just are like belong to one distinct and, you know, separate people. Ildiz mentions this in her introduction. And, you know, I think a problem with that is that we see that, you know, all the, these categories really bleed together. So there's actually a way that languages are already having conversations or exchanges that this idea of, the, you know, these kind of separate entities pushes against. So um, Ildiz's book is called Beyond the Mother Tongue, and she gets into a bit this term mother tongue and talks about how it has changed over the years. So could you speak a bit to that? Yeah. Um, so I was thinking about this, you know, before I read Ildiz's work, you know, I would hear a phrase like mother tongue. And, you know, that's not a phrase that for me has, you know, pejorative connotations. Uh, and I think this is maybe gets to some of her point is that we hear something like mother and it often conjures up. I mean, we all may have our different relationships to moms, um, but just like as a category, sort of the, the, mater the maternal nurturing, et cetera, that, that they have positive connotations, right? Um, but I think that Ildiz is really working to get us to complicate this idea of the mother tongue a little bit and think about it in a different way. So she talks about it. Um, particularly in that sort of, you know, uh, enlightenment and post-enlightenment moment, as we're starting to, by having a phrase like um, mother tongue in German, I think it's like Muttersprache, that we have kind of an innate internal language that we receive, almost like we would receive our mother's milk, we've received language from our mother. And much in the same way that we would see, you know, our mother's milk as like, the ideal form of nourishment, um, that you need it to become healthy and strong, that this mother tongue, this language um, is kind of forming the individual and that it's good and that it's kind of an inheritance, that it's 
natural, it's biological, right? So she looks at that sort of post-enlightenment um, 18th century framework and ties it really to German um, philosophers and thinkers and, and how it sort of sets up this idea of the mother tongue, like your one true language that you've received from the mother um, is like the right one, the good one, the true one, right? Um, so, you know, it's the authentic language. That would be like your one true voice. Okay, so we've got that idea of the mother tongue. Um, but then it's not just your mother. This idea of the mother tongue is then linked to notions of ethnicity and then nation um, and culture. So receiving that authentic language, um, that true language, that innate internal language draws you to other people who also share the same mother tongue, right? So this idea that like there's a kind of cohesion among um, all of the people who've received the same mother tongue. And so how those people are grouped together, you know, in terms of ethnicity, again, culture, nation. Okay, so there's that idea. Um, and then part of what happens here is that you can see that if you then speak more than one language, there's a possibility that it's seen as a kind of threat because then, you know, you've got your one true language. So why are you speaking this other language? You've received this, you know, it would be sort of like, why are you going over to have dinner at their house too? We already fed you, <laughs> you know, like you've got your home. Um, I don't know if you ever did that. I would sometimes like try and eat at other people's houses. <laughs> Not really. Um, but I, I, I appreciate the metaphor. Yes. 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 Um, and not meals so much for me, but snacks. Other houses had better oh. snack, snack food than we did. I see. Um, I understand. But I, yeah. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> but so, so this idea then of, you know, having another language is a kind of threat and maybe in some ways also like a betrayal of, of one's mother, right? Kind of betrayal of kin. So that's, that's kind of the early way um, in Ildiz's chapter, like the first way she mentions of thinking about mother tongue. Um, and then she starts talking a little bit about sort of contemporary feminist ideas of thinking about mother tongue. Um, and she mentions a couple of people like Julia Kristeva and the way that mother tongue, because it's associated with feminine, femininity, could be seen as sort of like a, a positive or as a kind of maternal, you know, there's, you could imagine the sort of sense of um, like, the celebration of the female or of empowerment. Uh, and I think she refers to it um, at some point as a kind of utopia. Um, and she sort of sees herself as maybe being a, little more, a bit more like um, Rosie Bradotti, who, who really sees it as um, kind of rejects that utopian vision, um, in part because all of these languages um, are in some ways kind of supported by the patriarchy. So, <laughs> so there's this idea that, um, that while this language of mother tongue um, comes across as, you know, celebrating the mother, it's kind of innate in the, in the wording. Um, and I think this quote, I'm gonna read it, is, is worth considering because um, I think that, I think that Ildiz wants us to really sort of um, push against some of those ideas that have been really ingrained. So she says, for, um, Rodotti, mother does not stand for something outside the law of father, but resides squarely within it. So nevertheless, the mother's body and all that it suggests about affection, proximity, and presence continues to function implicitly in the still active concept of the mother tongue. And so um, that there, there's this mother tongue here, but it's still sort of rooted within, um, you know, the, the power structure is that, you know, it's still patriarchal. So, um, so those are a couple of ways in which mother tongue is kind of configured and how mother tongue then becomes, you know, how these early biological notions then shape our sense of, you know, of the nation and, and the state. If, if one were to try to move beyond one's mother tongue and, and pick up another tongue or tongues, if you're a creative writer, what possibilities does that grant you that might not be available in your quote unquote mother tongue? Um, there's one place in the chapter where um, Ildiz talks about resituating our relationship to language. 
So that's one of the things that I think can happen when we learn. And I don't think this means necessarily that you have to become fluent, but just even exploring other languages can resituate our understanding of um, the language that we've taken for granted. So I remember when I first was learning French, um, I'd already studied Spanish and I had sort of this way of slowly making linkages between, oh, in French it's this, in Spanish it was that, and all of a sudden I understand what a direct object in English is. <laughs> you know, that I yeah. had heard people talking about this thing called direct objects, but I hadn't really appreciated what it was. And I, and I you know, was someone who managed to write really clearly, but I didn't understand all of the things that I was doing. So I think studying another language can help resituate our relationship to the language that we already speak. And one reason I think that that's beneficial is that it allows us to sort of um, scrutinize and doubt in a healthy way the language that we've received. So to really start thinking about, you know, if we're writers, um, you know, painters have their paints, sculptors have their wood and their stone and their plaster, we have words. And to really think about this matter, um, words that we work with, and to put, you know, put it in the light of day and subject it to a lot of scrutiny. I think studying um, other languages helps us understand um, what's going on behind the scenes in our own language more, things that we've taken for granted. And I think that's really helpful for creative writers because we understand that some of the things that we may have seen as, you know, quote unquote organic, sort of thinking back to this idea of like the mother tongue and Mutasprache, is that all of a sudden we're like, huh, does it have to be like that? Why am I using that word? Why do I structure my sentences in this way? When I read these German authors, um, I appreciate that they write sentences really differently. I'm reading this um, translation of Bernhard's novel, The Loser, right now, and I'm loving it. It is so much fun, and it's just a completely different sort of structuring of sentences. You know, so I'm reading it in translation, but that's one of the things that it opens up for me. Um, the other thing I think is, like, tell me, when you were speaking Russian, do you feel like another side of your personality came out? I know that is a yes-no question, so pretend it isn't. Um, that's, I, I don't, I don't think I ever got good enough at it for that to happen. Honestly, mm -hmm. it was, it was more, um, utilitarian in the sense that I, I just wanted to sort of make things happen and get from point A to point B with people. Um, so I think it was more, I don't think I ever quite reached that, that level with it, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I remember when I came back from France, I was an au pair. And uh, my sister said, I can tell when you're speaking French because of the way your face looks. Mm. <laughs> so I, you know, it's not necessarily a persona, but um, just speaking French, you have to hold your mouth um, to make certain sounds in different ways, you know? So I think, you know, I can imagine speaking Russian, like to try and pronounce something. It's like, you have to sort of take this you know, take this human being who's been used to speaking this language and now you're trying to speak Russian and all of a sudden you find yourself, your face, like you could be exhausted at the end of the day from all of the ways your face had to move yeah. <laughs> just to, you know? And so it's not a persona, but it's like working these other muscles. And I think it works other muscles in our heads too. looks like maybe you have an idea. About well, that. yeah, you, you reminded me that um, I, I had a colleague who um, told me that when I, I spoke Russian that I had a, a sort of a world weariness about me. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. Um, this is an aside, but I, so I took these classes in, um, in Paris where I was an au pair. Some of them involved like going into this audio recording thing and our teacher would listen to us. And it really freaked me out because yeah. you wouldn't know that she was listening to you until all of a sudden you hear her voice through your headphones. And I remember very clearly she said, your pronunciation is good, but you're making horrible faces. <laughs> so, it was really um, funny to me. And I think, I just remember, I think the word for um, making these grimaces, like grimaces, mm -hmm. let me know what I, <laughs> how I was doing that. So, so yeah, I think that when we speak other languages, we sort of um, have these other personas when we're writing in other languages or speaking other languages. And I think it can open up possibilities for other ways of writing and being. Um, the other thing I was going to say is that there's a real sonic quality to languages. I mean, um, 
I'm sure other writers do this. I do this. I read my work aloud to sort of, you know, it'll make sense on the page, but then I'll read it aloud to sort of see if it sounds right to my ear. And I think working with other languages also kind of changes the different sonic qualities that we might be looking for. And so you can play around with language a little, little bit more. Um, and then I think on just some really practical level that it could potentially open up access to other texts and reading texts in other languages. So, you know, I think it's a pretty common experience for people. They'll get really psyched about a text they've read in translation and feel like, oh my gosh, I would love to read this in, you know, in, in the original Japanese or um, Arabic or, you know. So I feel like that's really good for, um, for creative writers. And, you know, frankly, in the U.S. context, we, translation is, um, has gained traction over the years. Uh, but the proportion of work that we read in translation compared to other countries is just really abysmal. Mm -hmm. um, and the support for translators uh, continues to not be amazing. So I think it also is a way of sort of engaging in a sort of literary citizenship to be conscious of reading and attempting to write work in other languages. It's really, can be really helpful. So maybe we could wrap up with, um... yeah just talking about uh, what are some examples of, of writers that, um, that you like that have written out of a multilingual background or have written in multiple languages, however you want to take that, but who are some, who are some names you want to, you want to drop? Okay. Um, <laughs> so I came up with a list here. Um, one of the first that came to mind um, was actually Tolstoy. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I was trying to think about contemporary writers and I have some, on my list that I'll share in a second. But um, I remember reading the Volkonsky and Prevere translation of War and Peace a few years ago. And one of the things that I really love about it is that they retain the French and German that Tolstoy used. And so you, you know, reading through that translation, then they just have like big footnotes for the letters or the, the moments of speech. Yeah. And that, yeah, I, I, I don't know about you if you've had a chance to um, check that out, but... No, but I, I will say Tolstoy is um, surprisingly easy to read in Russian. Like I had this experience and other people might relate to this with, with foreign languages where I tried to read Russian fairy tales and it was really hard because it's a lot of cutesy terms for like farming implements, you know, <laughs> like, like the bucket and the needle and the, you know, like things that you don't, a butter churn, stuff like that. Yeah. And Tolstoy is, is very, um, talks about really complicated emotional things, but in fairly simple utilitarian vocabulary and syntax like it's not hard to read um but it but it is dense you know it's like hard to read on that other level yeah but language is really clear he's just so clear it's fascinating because i think people who don't have access to the russian might assume you know they see like a a, you know, a doorstop or like war and peace and they right. think like gosh i mean how many years would i have to study russian and marry somebody russian and <laughs> It's, it's so much easier than wow. the shortest fairy tale on a language level, on a language not on level, other yeah. levels, but <laughs> that word by word, sentence by sentence. It's, it's really, I'd, I'd advise people learning Russian to actually start with him rather than some other places. I think that's so fascinating. and so, so cool. Um, so I, you know, and I took real inspiration from just this morning, going back through my copy of War and Peace and seeing Tolstoy's you know, that's a real multilingual practice that's also just so historically rooted as well. Um, so that was one that came to mind. Another um, uh, semi-oldie but goodie is um, Gloria Anzaldúa's Borderlands La Frontera and just the way in which she moves between not just Spanish and English there seamlessly asking the reader to, inviting the reader to um, do the work uh, of moving between those spaces and how that creates a sense of being on the borderland, being in a sort of contact zone, but also really allowing the kind of um, the use of English and Spanish that arises out of that space, out of a borderland, out of a contact zone to, um, to change those languages, right? So it's not the sense of like, here's your English, here's your Spanish, but what happens when those two languages really come together and there's a sense of kind of shared history in play and I, I think that book is a really great example of an author um, rooted in this multilingual practice. Um, 
I also, a book that we read in my translation class, um, Antigona Gonzalez by Sarah Uribe, which was translated by J.D. Plucker, um, is a contemporary um, play rendering of um, the story of Antigone, but it's rooted in thinking about all of the people, all of the disappeared people in Mexico, um, largely because of the drug cartels. And that's a text where Uribe is using, and, um, and Plucker talks about this, translating different, um, different translations of um, Antigone, and some are in English, others not, um, different texts. So there are like newspaper reports. It's very multi, it's multilingual, but it's also polyvocal. So that was a text that came to mind for me. Um, Jhumpa Lahiri's 2016 memoir, in other words, you know, not in Italian, but talking about her relationship to Italian. Um, I was thinking about movies as well. In 1991, Julie Dash's movie, Daughters of the Dust, came out and um, looks at the life of the Gullah community, turn of the 20th century, um, just, you know, off the coast of South Carolina. <clears throat> and so much of their, um, the culture that is explored in that movie is deeply multilingual and across, it's transatlantic, across generations. And so I think it can come up in lots of different ways. And, um, you know, popular culture shows on Netflix, like, um, isn't there a show called something like Babylon Berlin? You know, just yeah, all these shows. Now. Yeah, yeah. Have, have you watched yeah. it? I got through like one episode. I don't know. It stick with it. I, I would say. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Cool. But like that, you you know you can watch shows. Um, yeah. From that, I mean, all the Elena Ferrante books um, and her Neapolitan Quartet. A couple of those have been done by HBO. Um, and they're in Italian, you know, but so there are all these shows that aren't, aren't in English, but we can watch with subtitles and it's great. So, yeah. um, and I think Bad Bunny, um, I saw an article about the um, Puerto Rican, like rap artist, singer, Bad Bunny. And so I think, I think um, their work is, comes from kind of like a multilingual praxis as well. So, you know, I think there are a lot of different examples of people um, really working out of that space. Okay, well, thanks so much for sharing some, some examples and some things for people to look into if they're interested. Mm -hmm. And uh, thanks, so much for, thanks so much for chatting with me today. Oh my gosh, Mike. So much fun. Thank you. Yeah, thanks very much.